But um, are you ready to start talking? Rolling. That sounds that sounds like an interrogation. He's not talking yet. Oh, he'll be. He'll talk. I'm he'll talking. talk. <laughs> he'll talk. Put the, put that really bright light in front of his eyes, and then he'll start talking. And then you go like, I can't see anything. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I turned it down. Oh. Well, now, um, well, now I'm blind, and I can't, uh, and I don't want to talk. So there you go. Oh, we went about this the wrong way. Now, a little uh, history for, for listeners. Back before Chris took his break through the later months of last year, uh, because we take turns each episode, one of us picks our main topic, or if we have a guest, the guest picks it. Uh, he had originally said, let's talk the movie Coraline. And by the time he was back on and I said, do you want to go back to the Coraline pick? He wanted to expand it a bit. And I say that like that was a bad thing. <laughs> oh, Chris wanted to expand it. No, no, I'm happy. But um, – he suggested not just Coraline, but the other movies by this the animation studio Leica, a fairly, compared to other studios, kind of a newer, in some ways, uh, contender in feature film animation. Uh, at least in the, yeah, at least in the realm of at least in the realm of what it tries to do in storytelling. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, don't, I was also just talking chronology, but that's actually that's that's a matter of debate too because uh, of their history. Because interesting thing, Leica is kind of a successor company to another studio who you people our age might be familiar with some of the work of, that being Will Vinton Studio. If you ever heard the term back in the day, Claymation, uh, the founder of the studio, Will Vinton, was kind of the guy who made some of those popular stop motion stuff back then, stuff like the California Raisins and other commercials. Uh, I know they did some he did some holiday specials that I saw on like Disney Channel, uh, that trippy Mark Twain movie, a healthy variety of stuff. Oh, <laughs> that rabbit in Michael Jackson's Moonwalker movie. That was him. Yeah, that was a thing. That was a thing. Michael Jackson was a thing. And that is not a sl- that is not, I like I love his music. But uh, what happened was he I'm, – I'm sure this was new, most part to the rise of uh, CG animation because before that, like, stop motion was the only way to do some sort of, like, legit three-dimensional animation. And I, I believe he was having trouble finding funding later on in, like, the late 90s. And the people who invested and kind of bought the company – and I still do. It is a guy named – I have his name right here because there's two of them. It's him and his son works there. Phil Knight. This guy is the founder of Nike. So needless to say, he has quite a bit of pocket change. Yeah. And yeah. his son, Travis Knight, was already working at Vinton. So he was – I think he was motivated to help out the whole company as a result. But for various reasons, Vinton ended up being fired from it. And they, I think he even sued to be to remove his name from the, from the company because of that. Uh, and he, I think he did, he set up another independent studio elsewhere. I don't know what he's done lately. And so it was changed and kind of revamped into a new studio called Leica, named after the Russian dog sent to space. Uh, random choice, but it's a cool name. And I actually – apparently they did consider or try dabbling in CG work alongside stop motion early on. But I guess for whatever reason, they that didn't pan out for them. So they closed that division. And now they're pretty much like the biggest name in theatrical stop motion in the U.S., Pretty much, it was around Paranorman one day. Decided to oh, well, it was it was after it was after Coraline that they basically shut down their computer animation department. And, yeah, and I think they did like a, a short or two, and nothing, but nothing huge came of it. Yeah, and they concentrated mostly on stop mo- stop motion. By the time Paranorman was out, yeah, and good for them because one, it's it's uh, it's a field that 
can definitely use more representation in Hollywood these days. Same like same goes for 2D. Like I think I said in the past that I like all forms of animation, but it's nice to have variety in how you make them. Um, so kudos to like like we're doing that. and he, and that and it's that is no small task because like I don't I've I've watched these like videos and read articles about how like the all the intricacies that have to go into stop motion because you're working with all these physical elements that just sounds like the most time consuming thing in the world. It can, uh, animation is tedious by nature. I all of it the, is, but yeah. like, stop motion sounds like the most tedious uh, and the easiest to screw up. On a completely different level in that regard, and I love it for the amount of focus that artists has that an artist has to really go through in order to make something look super beautiful. Because if you mess up during uh, your oh. while you're animating your did scene, did you ever see the episode of South Park where the boys try and make their own Christmas special? I did not see that. It references that original, like, student film uh, Parker and Stone made that actually was done with, like, stop-motion construction paper. And that was such a nightmare for them that the show's been CG because of that. And so there's a part where, like, they spend a half hour in one shot, and then Carmen accidentally sneezes it all off the desk, and Stan just screams. Uh Okay, the shot is finally set up. Now shoot the O-mouth for two frames. Ah! Carmen! Well, I'm sorry, I have a code. That took us half an hour to set up, fat ass. God. Oh, um, Jesus. And this is that, but in full 3D. Like, you've got all these characters, yeah. you've got all these props. You've got to figure out, you got to take camera motion into account. And I, know, I think there are, like, automated cam- like computer software to help with that nowadays. That were, like, I think they started to pioneer back in um, Name Before Christmas days. And yeah. speaking of that, if you do not know the name Henry Selleck, you've likely seen something he's done. He is a... Uh, Film... A stop motion veteran. He directed Nightmare Before Christmas, not Tim Burton. That's a common misunderstanding. Um, then James the Giant Peach. Uh, then Monkey Bone, but I won't hold that against him. But he got back to his stop motion roots after that. But, well, before we get to the movies, do you have anything else you want to say about the studio and stop motion? I, uh, I honestly do not <laughs> at okay. this point. And have, do you have I any? Think the film, you, I, I, go ahead. For themselves in that regard, I am. I'm really kind of excited to talk about them. <laughs> Me too. This was a good excuse to go back and revisit because um, now I'll say it so far, we're just going to list. We're going to we we already agreed we're going to go through each movie chronologically and just talk about do our kind of do what we do when we do show retrospects and just we'll say what we want to. We'll probably go in some funny tangents and yeah, warning spoilers for all four of these. And I'm just going to say up front, all four of these are worth watching to varying degrees. So I'd say if you have any interest in seeing some of them. Go do that first, or at least skip over, because I always put timestamps, skip over the ones you haven't seen. Uh, mm-hmm. At the moment, because uh, the way I watch them is I own Paranorman on Blu-ray. Coraline and Kubo and Two Strings are both on Netflix right now. And all of them can obviously be like, you know, through most digital marketplaces, be bought or rented in HE. That's how I rewatch Box Trolls. So let's go with the first one, that being Coraline. It is. This I'm is going a, to assume that you. I'm going to assume that you're going to put like the uh, like the the intro song from Coraline right in that little break right there. <laughs> yes, this, this, I I will say one thing about this that is like this might have the, my favorite overall soundtrack of a like a movie. For two things to note about it is that this is I think their only movie that is an adaptation because Neil Gaiman wrote I believe like a a book for younger readers compared to his normal work. And Did it, didn't he? Wow, yes. I completely forgot about I that. I haven't read it, so I don't know how much this does or doesn't diverge from it. But I also haven't heard anything about him like being upset with how this turned out. And to be fair, authors can also be happy when they make changes too. It's entirely subjective. But uh, on its own, yeah, this is a really cool and unique and interesting flick. The other, and the other thing I want to note is that it all has a reputation not just as a good movie but as – Probably one of the creepiest family films of the modern film generation. 
is I, I can't want like, I know, I know we have friends that are kind of wigged out by the button eyes and the, the, the creepy dad hands that, uh, that, uh, that piano plays me. Oh, that was oh, funny else. thing. The dad's singing voice is one of the guys from they might be giants. It's cool. Yeah. Super sweet, man. <laughs> This this film, I mean, like it started out right off the gate, like your standard. Ooh, it's going to be a creepy film. It starts out rather magical. Like uh, it starts oh. out, it starts out with like that very serene song at the beginning. Yeah, like there's a children's chorus, kind of a folksy sound to the instruments, and that doesn't surprise me because I looked up the uh, composer. Uh, a guy named Bruno, I actually don't know how to say his last name, it's like Coleus, Cole, but he has done some other animated movie soundtracks. The one that stuck out to me is Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, which are soundtracks with very kind of folksy vibes to fit their, you know, Irish Celtic uh, settings. They're, and those are beautiful films by themselves. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about them someday, and I recommend them both. Yeah, but Coraline, uh, like, that started the ball, and it's very, like, it's all the advances in technology that each film brings, either from the either from the use of cameras, the use of computer animation, the use of digital editing techniques, environments, uh, environments, how artists go about uh, uh, um, practicing their craft on each individual model. Coraline is probably the is the oldest one, but it's still really fucking beautiful in that regard. All their movies look wonderful. Uh, whatever issues I bring up with them, they are generally not with the visuals but so i mentioned the background music and you were talking about the setup like this is definitely their closest one to you hear the saying modern fairy tale a lot this is a modern fairy tale like straight up um mm-hmm. in its setup and structured and down to like the fact that just yeah you were talking about serenity of like like that intentional contrast between the regular world and the fake parallel world made by the other mother yeah yeah whenever i look at magical-esque films they always show real life in a kind of stilted kind of mundane way yeah and it doesn't look it doesn't look particularly beautiful or it doesn't look particularly awe-inspiring An- another stop-motion but- movie that does that uh corpse bride like that's intentionally like the world of living is the dreariest greyest thing and the, the the world of dead might as well be a nightclub but the way Coraline does it, and I think this, I think this is, uh, I think this is because of how stop motion lends itself to film. Boring aspects of real life that Coraline has to through in order to like feel alive or feel loved. Even that is really visually impressive. Like just seeing, just seeing like the subtle nuances and characters oh, with either with the oh, yeah, well, the or just father. like the way they're designed and move. Like all of like they have a super super stylized approach to characters. Sometimes like intentionally ridiculous. Like those two retired actresses. That oh God! They're, they're, one of them like I never thought make a Xenoblade comparison. Her chest is freaking huge, and, some, it's not, and it's not done for fan service either. There's nothing about the character like that. It's just a quirk. We, Definitely, like those are gravity physics happening there. Um, well, especially when you see the other versions of them, like that's defying gravity. Yeah, and it's fun. Like the entire film is fun to watch and very mesmerizing. That's mm-hmm. the one thing I got to give Leica as far as how they build their stories. They definitely respect characters are portrayed, and they're 
very much in uh, well they they have a, a large love for the, for the worlds that they create they they do have i feel like they have a good commitment to world building like even when we get to paranorman which is firmly set which is 100 set in modern day world uh that still has a feel and atmosphere to its setting but yeah just and just there's a lot of it's not just the world that uh, with the parallels in this movie like they do a good point of, like showing you just like her parents look miserable in their design the dad looks <laughs> like bags under his eyes the mom has like a neck brace i think they mentioned she had an accident or something and then compare it with the others with where it's like they're all bright and bouncy and of course that is just to drive the eventual point home that this is something too good to be true and that's where things get creepy Coraline herself i i, I gotta be honest i don't like her character probably oh, she's <laughs> a legit brat for like the first half of the movie uh, yeah, and I say that I say that not I, I say that uh, because number one, I tend not to like kid characters very much unless they're done well. Mm-hmm. But number but number two, and I think we've had this conversation before as well, is that personally, I was born in a home that wasn't particularly rich <laughs> or very well off. So uh, having seen Coraline basically kind of like thumb her nose to her parents because she's not getting the shoes that she wants or yeah, not. I, you know, it's funny. I remember the first time I saw this movie because I actually had not seen it since it was in theaters years ago, like in 2009-ish or whatever. Uh, It wasn't anything against the movie, of course. I just didn't get around to it. But um, I remember feeling like Coraline's mom is kind of a bitch for most of the movie. (laughs) And now here's the thing. She is kind of mouthy. They they both are. But one, Coraline is being bratty most of the time. And two, the mom is mellowing out as the movie goes on. Like, there reached, comes a point where she's trying to encourage her, like, get excited about the new school and saying, like, you do this for me. We can do some of the stuff you want to later. And Coraline is still mouthing off to her. So I'm like, but, I mean, at the same time, I feel like that's kind of realistic. Like, and also it, helps helps the, the that initial conflict. Like, even the best parents are not happy and getting along with you 100% of the time. That's just human nature best parents probably don't like their kids very much like that's 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 real life and i hate to say it that way but there are times when parents may not like their kids in that moment oh yeah and i'm sure i've done that with i'm sure that put my parents through that and i'm sure if i'm ever a dad i'll be put through that and it doesn't mean the, that they dislike you overall or anything that's just human nature the film does a, the film does a good job in, in saying that Coraline isn't this know magical girl like matilda was she has her own problems and yeah she she isn't a sweet angel and something is being influenced by like you know it's it's a cliche in movies but it's a real problem like kids don't you really like it if you have to abruptly move somewhere um like she has old friends in school and stuff and it's just and you know the fact that it is kind of an initially dreary environment and the other tenants are super weird you do kind of get her even if you don't agree with her being a brat yeah the fact that she and the way that she vents to uh, YB or why were you born? And when she said that, I was like, he's just trying to make friends. What's yeah, wrong no, with you? I like I liked YB. So that was that was definitely out of line for me. Um, but it, it, was, it was out of line for 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 me as well. But it shows that her character, number one, ain't perfect. And number two, a lot of the bullshit that happens is because of her. Mm-hmm. So when. Well, um, when she goes into the magical world where she meets her not mom and her not dad, the other the mother, not, other parents, the, the other parents, and then she re- and then she realizes that oh, this place is great. Oh, I don't have to live here. Any- I don't have to live in the real world anymore. Oh, I have to sew buttons in my. Eyes? That's the turning oh, point. That is both when the shift yeah. from 
paradise to creepy danger happens, and that's when the movie as a whole just becomes way more sinister. Like as that faca- facade, I almost said facade, that facade starts to crumble, and you start realizing like everything but the other mother is her creation and what she does to them, and like the the, the, the last half hour of this gets like nightmarish. Nice. Like, I was, I wrote a list. Okay, the one I remembered is, now, first off, there's the other YB who doesn't talk because Coraline doesn't like the other, the real one mouthing off. And then you realize, like, she's, at one point she sees that the other mother stitched a forced smile onto him. And the other Uh dad says something like, he mouthed off, and so she punished him. And then later, like, the last, (laughs) and because she helps him escape, he helps her escape, the last thing you see is she goes up and hits his skin, like, waving like a flag in the wind like she just killed and drained him for caring for Coraline it's 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 fucking hell it's, these are <laughs> sentient things she's creating and they are actually are all just in service of her and if they don't help her achieve her goal she she kills him. And then there's seeing the other like what the dad that dad is like decomposing. He's getting all fat, his voice is getting all deep and lethargic. And by the time he fights her in the giant mantis, his last word is like, I'm sorry. Oh, I, that, I remember oh, that yeah. too. Like oh, what oh. he was doing at that point was against his will. For a for a few days, I could not shake that. Like seeing the other dad <laughs> seeing the other dad like ha- have those arms basically like use him <laughs> and yes. throw him around he like that nothing else. but a slave at that point um and the other tenants like how the the ashes were like part candy just this big blob or how the uh the mice the mouse trainer was eventually just made of the rats like weird stuff Jeez. like that so um, so who was who voiced the cat do you remember who voiced the cat yes i thought you would remember of all people do you really not remember Ooh, but i'm not seeing it on the wikipedia keith page david. is keith david okay goliath yeah, he's not Uncle listed Daddy on, boyfriend on, number one. He, he's not listed on what? He's not listed on Wikipedia under that's a crime. Discovering. That's yeah. a crime. That's, that's, a, that's really, a hate crime. That's a cool <laughs> kind of modern equivalent of the Cheshire cat. And because the excuse is he knows how to travel between these worlds. So obviously in our world he's a regular cat, but there he can he has the ability to talk. And he's kind of he's kind of a veteran with the other mother's antics. He's really fucking cool, and I, I love his character. In fact, that he wasn't he wasn't necessarily loyal to Coraline. No, I th- he kind of felt you kind of get the feeling like he feels he's just along for the ride, and he'll fight back if he absolutely has to. But he's just kind of interesting, observing it, and maybe giving Coraline some advice. That's that's one thing I like about uh, Neil Gaiman's works is that he has a very good way of creating. Say riddle, riddle me this characters, but he has he gives characters their own motives, and they're not necessarily good or necessarily evil. Yeah, and I did. Well, you, just, don't get the, you, don't get the, you don't get the idea that the cat is going to do anything to help the other mother, but he's not a full on sidekick. Like I'm loyal to you. It's just like I'll tag along, and I don't like mice and rats, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's wow. Uh, I'm I'm getting nostalgia shivers just thinking yeah. about. Okay, Coraline. you know what? I'll tell you the the scene that was the most creepy to me, and it's literally like the end of the main conflict, which is when she finally, like the other mother's main real form is already pretty creepy. This like spindly spiderish woman with like these grotesque like extra legs and stuff, uh, crumbling face. Like I kind of wonder if we never actually see her 100 percent real face because there's still signs of the regular of the actual mom in disguise in it. But when she finally gets through the tunnel and like the tunnel starts shaking, compressing itself, and you just hear the other mother shrieking, "Don't leave me! I'll die without you!" <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that is not just creepy. That's terrifying. 
that's out of a proper horror movie. Also kind of sad, too. Like, it's, when I think... I would pity I would pity her more if not for the fact that we know she killed other kids and she was possibly well she was imprisoning and possibly killing the parent the real parents like she's evil but she does it out of loneliness uh, still no excuse and, and that's why and that's that's why I think it's rather sad because what if she did things a little differently yeah but what if like, she was she, genuinely friendly and trying to get kids and friends and stuff. But, I mean, the fact that she's this otherworldly character and they don't go into her origins and that kind of stuff, because that's not the point. It's interesting. Uh, two other things I want to say that I remember about seeing this in the theater. Because did you see this in the theater? I totally did, yes. You did? Okay, yeah. I saw it with uh, a cousin of mine, uh, Anthony, who's a good friend. I, I'm much I would like to invite him on the show. He lives pretty far from here, so I doubt that'll happen anytime. But <laughs> I remember one because there's is one more little brief like scare at the end where the claw the hand comes out and the ghosts are talking to her and he turned to me and went are they setting up a sequel like if you didn't know any better you might think until you know they they actually yb actually stops the hand and stuff that they might be the other thing is did you see the do you know if you saw the movie in 3d 3d now i i don't usually see movies in 3d but that one i did i think was like just the, the time we arrived that was the first one available and that actually, because at the end, you know, the idea is that the fake world starts to disappear, like dissolve and fall apart because it was the other mother's creation for Coraline. And I swear to God, watching those, those I had an accent for a second, watching those shots of the those black pieces coming apart with that white void behind it, in 3D, that is amazing. It's like you, a legit dust cloud of these pieces coming oh, at you. Um, and cool. it was worse in the movie in 3D just for that approach. Uh, I know that people have said that the How to Train Your Dragon movies are phenomenal in 3D because they do the same approach with like the clouds when flying. Um, I, I didn't see those in 3D, but when the, I know they're doing a the third one. Maybe I'll see that in 3D. So those are the, my main things. And any other points that we haven't brought up that you would like to about this? There was a point where I didn't there, – there was a point where I felt a little out of touch with the movie where, where the movie kind of just – well, the movie kind of threw me out of – the story essentially where this was around a time when I guess late two thousands, when games were starting to become or started to borrow narratives with video games. And there's a little bit of overlap. Oh, and I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah, there's a point where Coraline or, or where the ghost kids are like, you got to collect three of these things. Mm-hmm. And she's like, good. I got one. Three now words. I got to go get two. And they literally, and, when she picks um, one up, you hear the ghost say, you found me only two left. It's it's straight out of Zelda. Coraline did his turn to turn to the camera and go, here we go. <laughs> no, no, no. She should have held it up like a floating above her hands and it goes, da, na, na, na. Da, na, na, na. <laughs> I would have, I would have died if I did that. I would be like, nope, yeah. I don't no. need to see anything more. I'm I remember good. that was something critics pointed out at the time. It was an odd thing structurally to incorporate. Um, even though I know there was a Wii game, maybe that, influ- no, that wouldn't have influenced the movie. What am I kidding? You know, it didn't, it, or maybe Damien originally included. I don't know. Threw a couple people out the movie. So I think by the time Paranorman came along, they kind of, well, I can't even say they learned their lesson there because they kind of didn't. Kubo um, uh, incorporates that too, but in a less uh, in-your-face way, I feel. Because it's been more spread out. Other than that, I did like Coraline. Like, I, I, I love and respect it a lot. Yeah. Like, there's, I, a, there's a lot that it tries to do, and it succeeds. Yeah, and I do also just want to give a shout-out. Because, um, uh, Patrick, I, I did talk to him about this. I think he's only seen – he hasn't seen 
He has seen Coraline Paranorman and not the other two, but he did want to. I believe he said Coraline is legit, like one of his favorite modern animated movies, period. Um, and he does like cartoons, but not to the same level as us. Like he's more interested in like stage acting and general film and theater. But I'm, I, appreci- I think it says a lot that he can still – that Coraline still had a lot to offer him. And I think it has a lot to offer like all ages, even though – like we've talked about how creepy it gets. If you're if you're someone who wants to show this like a kid six or under, watch it with them because they might ask you to turn it off. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really dark imagery in like concepts, mu- like a movies and concepts definitely. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about the darker aspects in some of their other movies. Uh, that's going to be a big thing I want to bring up in at least two of them. Uh, but do you want, are you ready to move on? So, all right. So chronologically. Uh, I think it was through two or three years later. I don't remember if it was 2011 or 2012, but we got Paranorman, uh, the second Leica movie. And uh, I don't know if this is a common response, but this is actually my favorite of theirs. I, yeah, I can see that. And you know what? I, when I saw Paranorman, it was one of the first movies I actually saw dating Serena. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Did she enjoy it? yeah, she did. Okay, we, good. we liked. Um, I'm just imagining an alternate universe where she didn't like it, and you just look at her like you're not the one for me. <laughs> We're just like, no, <laughs> this is a sign. We we enjoyed it. We had issues with it, but we we definitely thought it was a. Uh, we definitely thought very positively about it. Yeah, I I feel like there are just a lot of things about this that I feel like make it click for for me. Um, I think it's probably their funniest movie. Like all the movies have elements of humor, but this is the one that I feel. Like maybe this and Box Trolls are the ones that go for it the hardest, while still mixing darker and sadder elements. Um, and I also just like how all these character interactions build over time because oh yeah, the fact that Norman basically builds up this little troop of of misfits kind of just by accident and or like like you know he starts out with you know he's kind of a class misfit so another misfit like kind of latches on to him then when the threat happens he ends up having to team up with his longtime bully and then the, the other the the other misfits brother tags along and norman's sister tags along because she has the hots for him and we will definitely get to the uh, punchline of that um but just the fact that you have all these very funny like it, they're exaggerated characters not just designed by personality but i feel like it kind of works to the benefit of of the jokes and the how they work off each other yeah. um and I also just okay. – I talked about aesthetics and world building. Like this is their one movie that is 100% set in our world even with – even though it has outlandish elements in it. There's all this seaside town. It's a very modest thing that like relies on its like folk local legends of, of a witch and stuff. Uh, but both – like the environments are very – they have a – it's a weird way to describe it but humble. Like they have a real lived-in feel. There are elements that are sagging. There's like – a decent amount of debris and junk around it, but it doesn't feel like trash or a dirty place. It feels like just a regular, modest little town. And uh, I feel like some of the this is these are some of the this is the movie that they might go for like the most really over the top character designs. Like some of you are even like kind of intentionally like semi grotesque. Uh, I remember the one thing I remember seeing this in theaters was when you first see Norman's mom, who was like middle aged. Her face is kind of like drooping a bit. Some girls a few rows down from me just went ugh, like audibly. <laughs> well, you know. That's that's what I like about like, yeah, the character yeah. designs. They feel they don't. They, whenever whenever we think about animation in general, we always think about characters that always visually look appealing, or, or they visually look like they, that they're got to be pretty all the time. They look yes. like mannequins and movie stars. Yeah, they I look- remember when this movie came out, people made a compare. Some guy on Tumblr made a post, kind of comparing it to the Frozen designs. 
which I don't think a bad sense or no, but he talks about how they kind of have just a samey approach. Like you can compare Elsa on her parents, the parents that yeah. kind of the same face with modern differences. And then in, in Paranorman, just it's it's all over the place. Like he pointed out, you can kind of see that the mom is probably going like the, the sister is going to look like 20, 30 years. Um, love stuff like that. that. Yeah, yeah. I and, love I, I love that kind of thought process where yes. people are people are varied and they have different shapes about them. And oh yeah, the, some of the the, the characters' heads are straight up like vertical. Like they're like vertical cylinders. It's crazy. I also, I also kind of wonder with certain characters how they got the figures to stand up because you have a uh, Mitch, the Jock brother, and the Casey Affleck character. His upper half is you know beefcake, huge, and his legs are so spindly. Like, Love that design. There has to be some technical trick on how that did not just crush the model's legs. Like they might, maybe they made the legs a more durable material or something. What I love about Paranorman is that they start thinking about animated films in more of a, of a cinematic kind of way. Yeah. But, uh, and Rango did that for me too, but Paranorman really set the stage where, uh, for me when I, when the movie started and you saw, it was kind of like a parody of super, uh, super cheesy zombie. Oh film. yeah. He's watching like an old zombie movie with like, th- like bloopers in it. Like the boom, mic hits the screaming girl, but also the fact that like Leica and the distributors logos are shown in like kind of grainy, you know, synthy neon uh, looks. The, the way that it started out it, with that, with that parody yeah. was on point for those old kind of films. It clues and- you in on some of the vibe. Cause even like in the, in the, you know, the actual story, there are a lot of like intense scenes or like zombies where they're just doing the straight up synth music out of a John Carpenter film. But right after that, right after that happens and it's time for Norman to go to school. Yeah. You, like the way that it starts with that very, and I hate to use the word serene music, but, no, but I love the, like the late motif track that you kind of hear throughout the commerce scenes da, da, da. and the, it's, and it's the camera the, the the way that they set that camera where you like you just you see like the little you see like the little uh the little neighborhood that he's in and yeah there's a lot of you see the natural decay of the life that he's in and yeah. the everyday process that he goes through and the way that the camera kind of veers out and reveals that he's not some crazy kid he's, no, he's- seeing like a He's seeing a bustling neighborhood that no one else sees. Oh, yeah, and, the fact that you're seeing stuff that is technically very morbid, like he's walking by the ghost of a mobster with cement shoes. I think somebody is meant to be Amelia Earhart because the female pilot impaled on a branch. But like, just, oh, my God. And he's but like, hey, it's literally God. like any other movie where they're walking saying hello to their neighbors. Like, hey, how you doing? Just because he's so used to it. Love that. It's it helping put you in his in his vibe. Like because that's kind of also the theme of, of this movie when you get further down its plot is of people's tendencies and fears to reject or persecute what what is abnormal um, and it's, and it's a tad on it's a tad on the nose but personally i love preachy tad on the nose stuff i do so, it's entertaining i thought it was entertaining yeah well if, if it's entertaining sure and a lot of people do it in an entertaining way what what paranorman regard is that it does it without trying to dress it up in a sugary kind of way yeah. did you lean away from your mic you went a little quieter i did not but i will lean closer to my mic okay you're good what, now. <laughs> what what paramount if you didn't hear i hear what i said i, know, I heard you i'll edit it frames its world and its characters is that these this is definitely the real world and it's and there's definitely like really creepy supernatural shit going out on going down 
make it look like that uh, we're not going to dress these characters to look like that they're they're essential disney properties these are characters with flaws and they and they look at and they look like it physically and yes. the fact that this this small boy is talking to a spiritual john goodman in a bathroom <laughs> john goodman and is he's wondering whether or not he, he should drop the f-bomb in the bathroom was brilliant oh yeah i want you to swear <laughs> like the f word they're, they're, this yeah. is I feel like in terms of the actual jokes this is their most risque movie like one of the first lines when he walks out of the zombie movie like he's like what are you watching he goes sex and violence love that no uh, <laughs> one of my favorites is I think the, the best friend is Neil the chubby kid and when like he's watching TV and he's like can you get the door hang on are you watching are you free training mom's workout videos again no I and then it cuts that. free training just like s <laughs> right right up shoved into that camera frame of some <laughs> Neil, so good. get the door! Get the door! I'm busy. Yeah. Oh, and then a minute later, when um Courtney, the sister, because obviously she's she's has the hot for Mitch, and when he looks away, she like unzips her top a few inches. Um, that was phenomenal. Like this show, uh, like the show, this movie, movie is yeah, this movie is so on point with capturing instances of people doing really silly stupid but very personable things yeah, oh even smaller characters like that uh that school play teacher who is way too invested in the speech and talks like a stereotypical like operatic lady like they hung her for crimes the founding fathers of blythe hollow discovered an evil witch amongst them no no norman with gusto like this they put her on trial and hanged her. But the vengeful witch cursed her accusers, seven of them in all, to die a horrible and gruesome death. Uh, apparently voiced by Lois Griffin. Wow, really? Alex Borstein. She's done other things. Uh, she was on Mad TV. She was a Power Rangers villain. Yeah. Love that. Uh, so uh, the point where the kids are are basically droning on in their lines for that school play. And she, when she, uh, when she has to show them how to portray yeah. the character, I love how she rolls her eyes, flings the script nonchalantly and instantly goes into character. Yeah, And at the same time, yeah. she says a, a line in the same scene. She's like, no, this is to sell postcards. Like she's, she's both well aware of, of the cynical nature of it, but she's so into it, even though it's so obvious, she's never going to get that same uh, passion out of those kids. I I dig that. I dig like those. Oh, okay. Okay. Now let's talk some. There's some other well, things to talk about it. Um, sure, but but uh, go ahead. And I'm I'm going to try and segue into what you're about to say, hoping that we're about to make the same point. Let's see. But all right. So the really minor, they're not the really minor elements that seems movie does an ex- does an exceptional job at showing a lot of strife characters and not making it seem like a throwaway thing when norman basically goes fucking bananas and uh, during the play and the whole silent hill happens in his mind mm-hmm. him home and uh, like the the reasonable predictable thing for a family film to do is for characters to show a little frustration but to act but to but to be on the side of the kid mm-hmm. to see the dad basically go off verbally ver- go off and verbally wish that his son was normal yes Fuck the mom is more what you're talking about but she's not able to 
raise Norman's spirits after that. She she doesn't have the power to to stand for him, and and the dad is just like ugh. I yeah, the dad's definitely the more like loud and forceful too. His voice, like he kind of hates this kid, and it's like, but he didn't do anything. <laughs> well, to it's, them, it appears that he just made a scene, so it sucks. And but yeah, uh, actually, do you know who voiced the dad? Who voiced the dad? Um. I don't know his name, but he's one of the main characters on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But in terms of animation, he was the voice of the ship captain in Wally. It's him, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Mutiny, yeah. mutiny. Uh, he's got a big voice. He's a big guy when I've seen him in that, so it makes sense. And the, some other fu- like fun, recognizable in this. Like I think Anna Kendrick is great in this. She has a mm-hmm. she's the kind of a great person to cast as a stuck up, you know, snooty cheerleader type sister. Uh, the craziest one is you know who voiced the the bully Alvin? Voiced the bully. That was McLovin. McLovin? Uh, super bad. The super geeky. Yeah. One. Yeah. Christopher Mintz Plus. Yeah, that kid. Wow. Yeah, there's yeah, a, the lot, of, there's a lot of kick He pops yeah. up and stuff. And that's kind of against type for him because you think he's going to always be geeky roles. But it kind of fits because Alan's kind of a pathetic guy also because he, he's someone who's who has who, – you get the sense he's very egotistical, but he's just a dumbass. <laughs> and um, There's a lot of really – that's the word I'm looking for. Like is not afraid to shy away from pathetic characters. Not yeah. in the sense not in the sense Especially where they're this. built to, Yeah. They're not not in the sense where they're built to be strong archetypes. But you can see just how really weak they are. And I love that so much. Yeah, like I I get you get the sense from Norman the whole movie that he's kind of insecure and unsure of himself. Uh his posture, the way that kid delivers his lines. Uh but you get why you you should see how much he's been shit upon in the early sections. So it's and kind of, I, 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 it's a movie that you feel genuinely happy for his victory at the end because it feels earned and cathartic considering that we've seen what he got, what he's gone through. Yeah, and the way that the way that Norman is portrayed is used to it. Yeah, he, yeah. Oh, the, be, he, he goes and like Alvin's written graffiti on his locker, and he just immediately takes out a rag and wipes it off. He is so. He's so used to it that he. Yeah. There's a part of him that kind of doesn't want to let that life go. It's normal for him. Well, he he kind of it probably made him like doubt himself. Um, but and but you you get a little sense. There are little you know there are obviously some hints that you know he is also his interests lie in quirky stuff by his family standards. He's a horror obsessed kid. He watches B movies. He has a bunch of merch. I still want that Snoopy zombie toothbrush he has in the beginning for the record. <laughs> I want that to be a real thing. Oh. Maybe it is. Yeah, so okay, do you want to get into, like, the heavier stuff? Because I did not yes. see this movie's big reveal coming. I don't know oh. how you can, but I think it's a good job. They, you know what I'm talking about, like, who the witch was. Uh, looking back on it, it makes sense. Yeah. During the, uh, while I'm engrossed, if you're engrossed in the film, you don't see it coming. No, if, well, because they, they, the gonna... town has built up the myth that she's, like, a traditional, cartoony, hunched-over old witch. And then, holy shit. They killed a kid. Killed a legit kid. And she's not happy about that. <laughs> Can't blame her. Can't blame her. Though, that's also, like, that's just a horrifying. I just love the fact that after, you know, he has that flashback vision of her trial and realizing the truth. And, like, and then, you know, it also helps put the zombies in context. So you're not sure why they're here. Like, it becomes apparent they're not trying to eat your brains and be violent. But... It's it, because they can't talk and stuff. You, you're not really sure, like, what is their connection to this? Why have they been revived? Why, how are they linked to the witch and what's their purpose? 
And I just love that after that scene, like he flashes, he comes back to the present. And it's just like 30 seconds of silence. He's just seen their library and they just come out and look super ashamed because I think they know what he's realized. And he just immediately just quietly goes, how could you? Yeah. It's like this yeah. purposefully quiet. And I think it's there for the audience to digest it just like he is. Uh, and then I know a couple of people who that kind of thing coming. They knew that the they knew that the zombies weren't particularly evil because they weren't chopping on people. Oh well, that's made clear early on because the joke is that the people become the angry mob because they're like ah zombies, but you still don't know their purpose. You, you don't know the purpose, and the message itself is I think it's more important than the actual reveal of the zombies aren't bad. Um, and I think oh man. Well, they did something bad, but even then, when they finally talked to him, they're like, it was the biggest mistake we've ever made, and yeah, we well, had to the, suffer the, for hundreds of years because of her. I mean, because of it, because yeah, that's her retribution. Well, what I'm saying is that the, the reveal that, oh, the zombies weren't really did super evil entities that we thought they were. It's mm-hmm. it's more uh, the, the people who I spoke to about this, they thought it was pretty predictable, okay. but not in, the sen- not in the sense of Aggie. I'm, or, talking about the, I'm talking about Aggie. I'm talking about the witch's identity. Yeah, yeah, the witch's identity was something different, and I think that was a strong build. Yeah, they pulled the rug out from under you because uh, because even when she's doing that cloud face, it's the stereotypical witch. So you kind of think this is just going to be some like faceless or stereotypical villain if you ever see them in person. No, and it's just a kid. It's just a it's just another bratty kid. <laughs> and I think she's a distant relative of his because. I think she has the same name as Goodman's character, Mr. Pendergast, who he says is his great uncle. And watching again, I was like, she has his, his eyebrows. So, yeah, I can see it. It would also explain why those two had supernatural powers as well. And you know what? Um, ending fight. <laughs> oh, I, I, oh man, seen, I was waiting for us to talk about this. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen a couple people who are like, nothing really happened in the ending fight. I'm like, but it did, though. Like... When I when I read when I listened to the behind the scenes, they didn't want to do a standard fight the dragon, yeah. beat the you know. It is beat not. The game. It's, it's not. It's all, all the physical action is on her side, and it's brutal. She's like elect, electrocuting him, trying to impale him, slamming him. It, he goes through some shit. There, like there's a there's a legit element where he has to like run. <laughs> he has to like jump around platforms. Oh yeah, like floating. She, she makes the whole area become like a bunch of floating islands. That sense, it becomes a. It becomes a bit of a video game, but I'm not I'm not knocking it for that. I play it. Uh, I, yeah, I play that shit too. That whole scene just it ramps up so brilliantly. It gets so a, emotional. Like, um, uh, she's so fucking mad at him, and yeah. she wants him to stop talking. And uh, like, there's just a giant like electrical explosion, and it's like it's like a like a huge wide shot, and like oh god, like the debris just goes everywhere. Like, oh man, and it's just like there's like a nice settle like afterwards. And, and the you, music you too. See, yeah, yeah. And you see like all the destruction that just happened. You're like, how did this kid survive this? This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I do. Cool. You, you do, I think I do realize like if he hadn't gone through to her, she would have killed him eventually. Um, but it's this is kind of I kind of wonder how people feel about it's kind of moral about kind of that you know she was she, she was she's been doing what she does to make those who killed her suffer. But the problem is obviously at this point she's done it for so long she's just. She's hurting innocence, and Norman is trying to wake her up to this. Like you've that's turned into the same kind of monster you were trying to fight, and yeah. the kind of stuff that like I think after once you know he's he snapped out of it. And they had that final you know more subdued scene. She talks about like, but what about the people who have hurt you? Haven't you ever wanted to hurt them back? And his response is, yeah, but what good would that do? 
and you that kind of made me think like yeah would they would that make things would that would that make them better people would it yeah. not have repercussions for him like that's what a harsh you, but noble thing to think about uh, what happens when you become the monster or if you've always been the monster like do you do you continue to let the pain continue do you just shrug your shoulders about it or well it's that's the thing like she became what they thought she was become she, better and that's and and that's I, that was the cusp of the their later their their last conversation together like yeah and the way he got the way he finally got through to her was to bring up think about those who did love you and she remembers her mother and that's 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 a really good message to go on to go out on i think man paranormal is really strong i love that i mean the idea of accept of accepting unorthodox people that's a noble one but one we see a lot of in family movies but this one is a little more i feel like that could be a little more divisive one but it's you know the kind of pacifist higher road don't sink to their level approach that's a that's a good one now for things i didn't like them about the movie sure well uh so remember when i talked about Coraline being a little derivative of video games and which part of this was a video game to you oh no 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 i'm not getting into video games i'm talking about i'm talking about like modern day pop culture like you were talking about like how memes were how the meme was kind of unnecessary in black panther Mm -hmm. i I thought the whole scooby-doo part was a little a little more dragged on than it needed to be. <laughs> Do you mean the van or research? Um, which, which part? Kind of a running joke of they were in a van and someone, uh, let's see, the the police officer was like, oh, it's for your meddling kids. And mm-hmm. then there's Velma or the Velma-esque character in a room giving people directions and yeah. uh, giving the, car- the cast directions what they needed to do. I felt that, all right, I'm like, okay. Kind of a throwaway. Second time, I know you're doing it intentional, but third time, the audience is not dumb. We can move away from this motif now. That's it's a funny because li- I never thought of Scooby Doo watching this. Well, <sighs> I feel like it's just a general throwback to '80s style stuff. That you know, the some the same vibe that Stranger Things goes for. And you know what? If that was if that was if it was left up to subjectivity, then I would have just been like, you know what? That's that was just me. Uh, just sitting in the theater thinking that. But during the behind the scenes, they were like, yeah. That one character that was calling, uh, that was talking to him over the phone. Yeah, we thought it was. We thought it'd be funny if uh, we pulled from Scooby Doo and thought, mm. what if they just left Velma home and went about, and they just went about their business. They're doing the cool shit. I'm like, oh, <laughs> why? I that's it, it's, it's it's one of throw me out the movie is what I'm saying. That's all. Okay, I that did not occur to me before. I feel like my only real issue is. I, it's with, I feel like it's with, with almost all films, there's still some jokes that are a little that fall a little flat. Or there's one that like you mentioned that police officer. Like her first line is like, "Up, oh, some people are littering." And she like finishes a big gulp and throws it in the ground. Like that's kind of an obvious joke. Uh, <laughs> and there are a few little things like that scattered throughout the film, but they don't. There aren't numerous enough to drag it down. Uh, and I do just want to talk about uh, one of the last jokes. And there's another thing about like a kind of doing some things that most family films still don't. Uh, like, and I brought it, I, I hinted earlier, the punchline to the sister hitting on Mitch the whole movie. I think you know what I'm getting at. That was great. I loved it. Yep. All this thing good. is, and you know, here's the thing. Um, I, before I saw this movie, I listened to some podcasts and there was one that they actually, they didn't spoil it, but they said like, there's a joke at the end that you could kind of view as some, somewhat groundbreaking for family movies. 
and they didn't say what it was. But when I watched it, I was trying to keep a lookout for hints of it. And then I, so I, I picked up on it early on, like the fact that she's being very flirty with him. Like the first thing she's not wearing a shirt, and she's like running her finger over him. And he's just like, oh yeah, okay. And you, could, I mean, for people who don't see the first time, they could just chalk up to being being a dope. But then at the end, like you want to get to movie sometime, yeah. he's just first he gets his her name wrong. He's like, that's great, Kathy. You're gonna love my boyfriend. He loves chick flicks. <laughs> and you see her face drop, like, gosh, shit. Is so disappointed, and, and it works. Well, it's also it's, great because he is not. There's nothing about him that's stereotypically gay. Like he's a big beefy jock, yeah. and uh, that's true to life. Um, and so, I mean, like you know, uh, minorities come in, uh, whether or not you're gay or black or or you know transgender, you come in like you, there's like a whole gamut of what kind of personality you can actually. Yes, there's not with. those classifications. Don't put a limit on your personality, your appearance and stuff. And I think this was a way of like a both joking, having a, jo- a respectful joke about it and also demonstrating that like the last character you'd expect by like character cliches and designs. It was really cool. Yep. Uh, Fun way to, to wrap it up. I think I, we can move on from, from the All right. Yeah. So uh, we are halfway through. Now let's talk. I'm kind of curious what you have to think about this next one, which is uh, Box Trolls. I think it came out in 2014. Um, they typically have like a two or three year gap between each of their movies. And this is their least critically successful film. Financially, not so much. I think it was on par with Coraline and uh, Paranorman. And I I kind of agree with that. But at the same time, I still think it's a quality film. So I don't know how you feel on that. Box Trolls is... I want to see Box Trolls in the theater. Because mm-hmm. the trailers made it look awful. The trailers, the, the trailers, the commercials... Um, I think I know um, why. Did the box trolls remind you of the minions? You know, I think that's part of that, but it didn't look interesting. And whenever, whenever a movie, or specifically an animated movie, a modern day pop soundtrack, or you know, a, a, or a, a really popular song to get people to come to the film mm-hmm. or come see the film, that's an automatic red flag for me. That says, did they do that in trailers? I don't remember. It, um, what's the song? Oh, here we go. And feeling in my soul. Okay. Whatever song that is. I can't tell that's you. What they, that's what they played in the commercials. Mm-hmm. And you've heard it. You've heard it like a thousand times. Before. I'm sure I have. Song a thousand times. Um, I heard that in a trailer for, specifically for an animation, for an animated film, immediately turns me off. It immediately says this film cannot stand on its own another property to make it sing hmm. it's kind of what i felt with black panther because they kind of did that shit because they they played like some they they, they played like a, a the kendrick song. lamar songs a couple of songs and i was like mm, i don't know <laughs> i made me go, legit like the black panther soundtrack i forgot to bring that up uh sure. like it's for it's a good variety and the tracks are pretty catchy i like the music in black panther but the 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 sound choice for the trailer did not make me want to see it the elements of the film made me want to see it. Right, right, and, unfo- right. and unfortunately, the song and the shot choices that they were choosing for the commercials of Box Trolls made me not want to see it. Did you see it in theaters, when- though? See Box Trolls in theaters. Oh, when wow. I saw, when, when I saw it, Box Trolls on Netflix, I was interested. I, was, I did it out of curiosity. I was like, let me give it a shot for once. I didn't love it, but I did like it. Yep, it was same here. Lot, I think it, this it was it was a lot better than the commercials gave him credit. For. I I think this is yes, this is my least favorite like the film, but that's not saying like oh it's their equivalent of like Cars two or something because it's still good. 
<laughs> that's it is not cars too that's, no uh, but it's, I, it's, I think i know one two reasons that i think um it was lowered a bit for me and maybe scared some people off too this is the least creepy of their movies um because even when we get to kubo that's not a horror a paranormal type movie but it has some intense moments this not so much um i think maybe some of the moments with the villain might scare little little kids but other than that not so much and also i feel like this is probably their least i i would say this is their least memorable overall cast of characters writing wise yeah because i couldn't just i couldn't tell you anything about eggs like he's this kid like even like we talk about norman like he's not a, a he's not like a like um super hyper character he's not like making good or anything but we talk about it, he like he shows his insecurities and such Coraline she's a brat but you know that makes her not standard like I feel like eggs is the time they kind of did fall victim to bland kid protagonist syndrome yes they did it's it's a bit of a shame because I kind of I, I liked him but I didn't uh... he didn't get on my nerves and I like the concept of him but yeah they're just not that interesting uh, it's and this, I can extend to some of the other characters too, like uh, the main girl, Winnie, and her dad. Like they are so fucking stuck up. Um, like it, it makes them unlikable at points. And the villain uh, Snatcher. Now, I love Ben Kingsley and the performances and designer fun. He has plenty of fun moments, but he's still a little. You've seen villains like that before. Some like you know catcher hell bent on doing that. Like, uh, do you see the Shaun the Sheep movie? I didn't. That's that's something Armin's done a couple times. Like the villain in the Wallace and Gromit movie that there's like an animal control guy in that. Like this one stuck up British guy who's all about like gotta get these animals. And that's literally that that is Snatcher's deal here. Now granted, he, his end goal is very clear, and that and the result of it is something I, I like. Um, and the performance is fun. He has some funny moments. Uh, and also the Bottles themselves. The fact that they can't talk really that kind of limits how attached you are to them. And the fact that there's just so many of them. Uh, I think it's this is weird i'm i you, you can sense the frustration in my voice because i'm trying to find reasons to really what box trolls was trying to do and i think on a technical level box trolls was super impressive oh um, i love the world in this like when you get those zoom outs and you see like the, this city is very vertical like and it's also a very different time like in this and kubo they go for totally different time periods but this is like kind of you get the sense like 18 1900 but there's still like a steampunk element to some of the technology it's a cool world it's i i don't think i know there are a couple people uh in logistics um who are out in logistics who are looking on the, over this with a fine tooth comb who are going oh set in london or oh it was a, it was a really you know grim pre yeah it's a mostly british oh, cast there's no way people, American audiences, would would enjoy this. And I'm like, yeah, they would if it was written better. Uh, people like Ardman. Wow, oh, came out really pretentious. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, uh, what I what I meant to say was, uh, was that self inbox trolls did not did not inspire me to like it any more than I did on a technical level. Before you mentioned the word eggs. I didn't know who I forgot who the main character was. <laughs> yeah, and I feel I, I honestly feel and I honestly feel really bad for that because it's a cute looking character, but there is nothing really amazing that the I, kids. I don't like the for. designs in this as much as the other ones. I hope they could have stylized them a little more. The box rolls themselves least, are fun. Yeah, but the box rolls themselves are fun, and I like I like Snatcher on a performance level. Uh, I mean, like you said, he's he's more of a. He's, he's, he's more of a catcher 
kind of enemy where he's like uh, he's basically Cruella Deville, honestly, yeah. in that regard. It just, uh, and he wants to he wants to fit in a, a, in a society that does not accept. That's what I like about him that he's not just like oh I hate animals. It's and that's like one of the lines. The main line I wrote down from this because like there are many. There are good, funny bits of humor with the dog and stuff, but the thing I thought, like the main one of the main morals that it actually does, I think, get across pretty effectively. Snatcher's last scene, because you know he's all about like I want to be part of this high society, wear the hats and eat the cheese, even though he's definitely allergic to it. And um, so he he's, he forces them to do this at the end, like you know, basically yeah. taking Winnie captive and stuff. And <laughs> the joke, I love the fact I, I do love the parts where he eats the cheese and he's just so allergic, like the skin immediately swells up. He's well, he looks like a monster, yeah. but. Um, do you remember what Egg says to him in his last moment? I remember it being I remember it being very profound, but I didn't remember it after it's, the fact. So he has one piece and he's already pulled up and like I think Eggs knows like any more of it will kill you, and he just points out like look, everything you've been working towards, everything you're aspiring to, it's not about making you who you are. You you've been doing all this not trying to make your own identity, but because you look at these existing ones and be like, I have to be in this, I have to be, even though by all you know, by all factors he shouldn't be. And he's trying, like, it's a last-ditch thing, sowing some sort of compassion for Snatcher because he kind of recognizes there is a tragic element to him, which is interesting. And I think Snatcher's last thing is, like, this This is what I choose, and he eats it. And that's a great defeat where, like, there's a yeah. pause, and he starts going, like, you know, it's not that just cut outside to the far view of the city. Was, he chose the way he died. He chose yeah. the way. In the, that, way, in the uh, end, he, he has no one to blame but himself. I think that in and of itself, I think the overall message of Box Trolls I think the fact that they tried to do something particularly interesting uh, by explaining that, do you really want to become a, uh, uh, become a part of this really snobby uh, uh, rich class or would you rather be happy in the muck with these ugly looking trolls? Because these ugly looking trolls can get down and they yeah. kind of can. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you re- uh, uh, and do you really want to be friends with this uh, really snobby uh, little girl who gets off on the macabre or... Or, or are dad. you okay with being, yeah it's 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 very it was a little strange with that kid but this movie had a lot of character quirks that i that i that i actually admired I yeah liked the, i i, I want to be clear because because i feel like we spent most of the time talking about its flaws this is still a good movie i like the fact that snatcher is fucking allergic to cheese and he has the, <laughs> the most allergic he, can possibly be like yeah, I, the animation like, for how he swells up is so good I like how effective and how brilliant he can be in finding these box trolls. Like he's become and really good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's become his life. It's part of his life goal. Like they are his key. He says the key to the social status he wants. Bling foil. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I like his bumbling sidekicks. Oh, I are, do want to talk about those guys because they do some. I love that running meta-ish. joke. They're meta as shit. And yeah, not like, it's the two. And not, do you know who did their voices? Oh, Chris, I was here. Uh, I said who like three times. I guess my mic. My okay. The two main guys who have the actual conversations are Richard Ayoti and Nick Frost. Uh, also, Simon Pegg plays the Egg's real dad, who pops up, you know, kind of crazy a few times. The crazy one, um, you know, that that little short guy with the glasses who's just kind of manic and mostly grunts. I, I know who that is. Yeah. Who is it? Yeah, uh, I forget his name, but uh, he Tracy Morgan. Car. He was in a car accident, wasn't he? Yeah, he's recovered, but like a, like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, Tracy I, I Morgan from the which, and you can you legit cannot tell Tim. Like Tracy Morgan is a guy who I feel like if you hear him talking, he kind of always sounds like he has his mouth full. That's just the way he, he sounds. And I don't know what he did for this, but he legit like changed his speech pattern to a little goblin man. 
And the way that... Because <laughs> he, he that says stuff. Fact, he doesn't just yell. And even when he says stuff, like, I, I would never guess that. I wouldn't be able to tell that was him if he didn't tell me. So props to him. Out is like all up in a all up in a in a in a, in a fury that he's just like leading him on. Oh, he's helping to lead it on, and he's just yelling, chanting, chanting. Yes, yes. But also, we, <laughs> we, we, we didn't touch on we didn't touch the other two. The fact that there's that running gag, and you talk about the meta stuff. Like they are, they spend all the way convincing themselves, like we're the good guys, right? These 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 are nuisances. We're just we're doing what the right thing is, and it's kind of just this gradual realization they have. That they've been on the, the wrong side this whole time. And so it's, I think it's no coincidence that those two survive and Snatcher and Tracy Morgan's guy don't. I really like the film new people like characters like that <laughs> by keeping them at the end of the film and having them having them talking about the nature of their existence. <laughs> I remember um, when Felipe brought this up on Generative Mission, he really like that part was the part he dwelled on. He, like, he talked about more than anything else in the movie, even though it's a minor thing. But it is one of the more clever like I can't think of another movie where the sidekicks have done that as a constant, like th- revolving joke. Uh, for those who are listening, uh, Box Trolls is pretty solid. You should watch it's, it. I, I think it's probably the weakest Leica film, yeah. only in the sense that there are a lot of characters on the surface that you've seen before. Uh, you've you've been through this song and dance before. It's still technically a pretty impressive visual masterpiece yes. of a film. Yes, yes, very unique world, even by Leica standards, um, and pretty well paced and fun. Uh, but yeah, it just is not. It, it generally doesn't hit the same highs as the other movies we're talking about. And for me, that's mostly due to the characters. All right, that's, all right. That's so really we got all I had. one. So do you want to move on to our last one? Yeah, that's really all I had to say about box trolls. Unfortunately, that's that's okay. That's all, pretty much all I have to say. Other than it kind of blew my mind to find out that one of the main box trolls was voiced by Steve Bloom. Nice. Yeah, for those who don't know, that's the Toonami robot, Spike from Cowboy Bebop. I saw him at a con once. My main memory of the panel is him singing Barbie Girl in like his sexy Spike voice. Oh, oh, off but, topic. But um, completely off topic. There is, speaking of Spike, there is like some GIF running around. where Oh, you retweeted it. Some amazing animator like put like a 3D animation of Judy. Judy Hopps. Talking to, or, or, or uh, yeah, Judy Hopps from Zootopia uh, flirting with a non-committal 2D animated Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. It is fucking mesmerizing. That's it's really, really well, well done. done. Um, even though I'm sure it's yeah. going to result in some weird fan art. <laughs> don't like, don't show that to the I Will Survive guy. <laughs> I'm like, the internet is going to go nuts with this. And I've seen, I have seen some really weird Zootopia <laughs> shit. <laughs> I mean, that, uh, that, and that's that's completely separate from the guy you just mentioned. Well, like, I mentioned Steve Bloom. That's the most famous character. It makes sense. You bring it up. Yeah, we should do Cowboy yeah, Up someday because you still haven't seen it, right? Actually have the DVDs. I've seen half of it. Do you like what you've oh. seen? I am kind of kicking myself for not watching it before. I told you. That was like one yeah. of the earliest episodes. And at first I thought you were saying you don't like it. And I got all upset. And they were like, no, I haven't watched it. I'm like, oh, dude, you need to change that. I bought it a few months ago and I started watching it. And I was like, dude, this kicks ass. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, going to be an episode soon, I think. I might pick it. Um, a lot of it great, there's a lot of great thematic elements in this oh, show. Holy pretty much shit. everything about it is great, I'd say. So – now that's enough about uh, Steve Bloom. Let's move on to our last film because I'm actually kind of curious what you're going to say about it based on some comments you've brought up in the past. The most recent, Kubo and the Two Strings, 2016 summer release. This is, I guess you could count uh, Box Trolls as fantasy too, but this is like fairy tale fantasy and with a different aesthetic since it's, it's meant to be in like a feudal Asian type land. And 
Yeah, this is... Uh, Chris, I remember you had said you did have... you. I might be putting words in your mouth if I'm remembering it wrong, but I think you said you had loved the opening act and never quite matched those heights for you. Pulling the two strings. That year probably had the strongest opening for any film of that year. Like Zootopia came out came out that year too. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a Disney film which showcases itself as master storytellers, like you think they would have that they think they'd have that locked down. Not not saying that what they did I, I like the opening was yeah, I'm not saying what they did was bad because I like that opening too. Zootopia had an amazing opening. Cubo knocked that shit out the park though because things that you can do when you're forced to narrate the opening of your film to grab your audience really quickly. So the thing that you, so one of the things that you do, like say, like in Moby Dick, is to command your viewer into action. You command them to call you Ishmael. Yeah, you command them to call you Ishmael. And Cubo and the Two Strings, they, they command you to listen. They command you to worry that Cubo... Don't look away. Yeah. That Cubo that, that, that is telling you. I gotta say, blank. you keep saying Cubo. I think I joked, it sounds like Cubo and the Two Strings. It's Kubo. Kubo, Kubo. I'm being a, uh, I'm being a dick. I'm sorry. Cubo and the Two Strings. Cubo is looking after his, his comatose Marowak mother. <laughs> Kubo and the two strings. The way that Kubo opens is, I'm I'm sad to say that Kubo, the film, doesn't exactly keep that momentum from. I'm halfway with you because I do think the middle portion is kind of weak uh, compared to the best parts of like a stuff. But for me, both the opening and closing act, I think, are great. And I'm guessing you oh, tell, tell me what. Tell me what you think. Well, I don't want to skip straight to the end, but I will say, like, we're talking about, like, yeah, let's look at that opening. Like, that opening scene with his mother on the boat is visually amazing and intense. Like, she's getting her head against a rock. This baby almost dies. You realize it's, had, it's lost its eye. And then, you know, cutting to, like, we talk about Norman. Like, Kubo has a sad day-to-day life, too, um, at least as in reference to his mom, because they established that injury just kind of messed her up. And for like half the day, yeah. she can't really move or talk. And he has to do the cooking and kind of taking care of her. And it sucks because when she's constant, she's per- she's pretty awesome. And then that opening, the opening town scenes, like when he does, you know, they, they kind of smartly establish the, the supernatural element right away with him doing the storytelling with the moving origami. And then they quickly establish the sinister element with those sisters. Like there's some scary imagery moments in this too. And the, the two mass sisters are a big part of that. I also think that uh, the first scenes, couple of scenes, you know, once the journey starts with Monkey, like those interactions with the whale, like use up all your questions, no, don't talk, eat. Great, great stuff. It's the interaction of Beetle where I think things slow down a bit. Like, I feel like for some reason, his a lot of his jokes, he's the jokey character of the trio, don't hit as well as a lot of other Leica jokes do. Like, how many times have you seen a movie where somebody does something, then points and goes, he did it. Like, they even showed that trailer. Like, that's like they thought that was a standout joke. Um, and nothing against Matthew McConaughey because he did his damnedest. Well, the, the thing the thing I learned from Box Trolls was never to take a film's commercial too seriously. Yes, oh, watch it I know that. Honestly. I know that. So, but I, that well, is that, that's what I learned. That so, is symbolic of some of Beatles' moments, like kind so, of lowest common denominator types of jokes for in terms it, of wit. It, it it is. So I tried not to pay too much attention to those jokes. And just went to, just went to the theater expecting a good time. Yes, um, I did get that. 
unfortunately, those particular jokes by Beetle, I don't remember a single joke. I didn't write them down, but I did rewatch this. But like they just, he, it was a lesser batting average than I'd expect from these guys. Yeah, it, from both Mike and McConaughey. Now there was one particular joke that I did outright enjoy, and it wasn't so much as from Beetle and Monkey. Which one? It well, it's the point where uh, they're they're about to have their final battle, and they take a rest and they take a sleep. And Monkey and Beetle are they they share a nice little emotional moment. Yeah, uh, they the bond night, over the, time. The, yeah, the night before, the morning after. Uh, Kubo wakes up and he's like, it's time to go, guys. And Monkey and Beetle wake up with a serious case of bedhead. And if you're <laughs> who has seen uh, very saucy sex scenes in the past, oh. you know, you know, the, that kind of look that they have with that kind of bedhead. I missed that. Uh, that's a per- that's a per- <laughs> that's a thing. <laughs> that's a that's a legit thing where when they wake up there, it kind of looks like that. They just they, they did it the night before <laughs> the, the way the Man. monkey kind of messes her hair and trying to trying to puts it back in the place. Oh, and that almost feels like open to interpretation. I have to watch it again to see like their positioning and emotions. But it's it's a little I, subjective, but not by much. Considering that's pretty that good. That's yeah, pretty good. That, and I like I like monkey in general. Like someone who's very hard edge, but your maternal edge still comes through at points. And that ties into, okay, are you ready to talk about the last third? I'm ready to talk about the last third. Because I also do want to touch on like, I don't th- I feel like it's awkwardly handled the reveal of who Monkey actually is because it kind of comes out of nowhere in its execution. But the idea is because she's been saying like, I'm this charm of yours. Your mom with her last, you know, energy brought me to life. No, the monkey is the mom. Her human body was killed and she transferred herself to the charm with Kubo. And she didn't, but she didn't want him to focus on that. Of course, and so the other thing is, so seeing Beetle bonding, and Beetle is established, like, he's cursed, but he's also an amnesiac, but he's pretty sure that, they, they know about Kubo's dead dead Hanzo, and he's like, this, I think this was my mentor, my friend, let me let me help you. So they get to, another thing, because they, they do kind of repeat the Coraline Three Orbs thing, it's not as video gamey. The yeah, dialogue and not. setup environments are a little less obvious, but it is kind of still, make the, it makes the journey portion feel a little more segmented. Uh, so they go to this fortress, and... This is where things – this is where this movie – the problems I had kind of redeemed themselves because the truth comes comes out uh, when the sister reveals Beetle is Hanzo. He wasn't killed. He was cursed and made a knee check. And this is where I was – I told Mark when we meant on his episode – I think we – I don't remember how we brought it up. But I mentioned that I think this has one of the boldest last acts in a family movie. Um, and hopefully you understand why I'm saying that. Okay. So the reveal is made that, and – you know, they've knocked the old the other sister out, so they're having this tender moment, and just bam, Beetle is gutted. Like the sister walks up and just impales him, and he is dead like that. It's sudden. It's there's no sense of goodbye, and it's very unheroic, and it's just like shit. And you already knew, and you already knew they had set you up. Like you know, Monkey's about is dying, and then the scene ends, and it's just another like super silent moment where it's the next morning. Like the sister's mask is shattered; she's dead. Beetle is a corpse. The monkey is a broken charm, and Kubo's just sitting there crying. And I was reeling. I'm not gonna yeah. lie that yeah. that that was just I I I never anticipated the movie taking this direction. And so I, on the other hand, um, also felt this way. No, okay. <laughs> no, I, I I actually agree with you. Um, in that I I did feel like that. Okay, yeah, the, par- the the parental reveal was 
I feel like it could have been handled a little. Yeah, bit I was confused not, at first because it's like he has a vision when he's underwater. Where he sees the monkey and goes, "Mother," and I didn't quite understand until he came out. And then he says, "Mom," and then he cuts to like the, the, that like hours later. And I'm like, "Wait, what? What?" The writing there was clunky, so, a little. Yeah, it, it was so focused on making it so surprising that. Or at least it felt that way. It felt but it didn't like feel it was, clear in the reveal. It didn't. It didn't. Feel, it didn't come across as clear. I'm wondering whether or not they even needed that angle at all. And just I don't think they did. Of, but I, actually, no, they probably did so that they could incorporate it into Beetle, like his growing relationship with her, and it make it would have made the it makes the his the reveal of who he is more impactful than the, if the monkey had never, you know, did not have that history. See that. Um, of the emotional beats landed some of the comedic parts some of the slow parts that were a little bit more of world building and yeah and, fi- and fighting and, and fighting giant enemies or yeah or like, world bosses like that that, kind of- that 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 big skeleton that was a big hyped up thing because it's apparently the biggest stop motion puppet ever made because they have to make it to scale with the normal characters and it looks cool but it's not i didn't find it to be that engaging a scene I was actually a little confused on character placement when characters were moving around on screen. Like mm. it felt like some of the staging was off. Like I mean, it can't have been a hard. It can't have been an easy scene to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, I'm I completely respect of how challenging. Yes, getting pulling it off at all is an achievement. And as as a person in the audience, to that kind of took me out the film because I wasn't sure where characters were. A moment before to come the camera cut mm. it kind of felt like i kind of felt a little confused as uh, as to where characters were a moment before that's that's what i'm saying is that it's funny how we're, talking, we're, we're talking about both in writing and shot composition we have scenes where we're a little confused that shit is not easy to do right? yeah. I, i'm not i'm not saying that it is i'm just saying as a viewer i, it I guess part of it is it i i maybe I, we're also taking the task because their first three movies weren't really as guilty of this there's that but I think conceptually, conceptually, I favor Kubo much more than the other three. Like world, the fantastic character designs, mm-hmm. the way the, the way that it's structured. Honestly, lean towards this one the most. This is their most fit. technically ambitious film. The landscapes are big and open, which is their first three films were not. Uh, you have to they have to do a lot more effects incorporation like making the characters interact with water and all sorts of stuff uh or even you know it's just scale stuff like the like the like those monster that skeleton monster like fighting on a boat in the rain like think about all the logistics that have to go together of that and the, the, those kind of thema- the kind of thematic elements such as like you know uh like reincarnation and dealing with souls and that there's just yeah there's a scene that's just them kind of talking and meditating on the act of death and what you know the, the idea of crossing over from it but okay can, are you ready to talk about the end I'm, like well, after that, the death well kind of go ahead kind of stuff that, that kind of stuff that that the whole spiritual aspect of it that's the shit i live for which is why a little harder on Kubo because I, I i love what it tries to do a lot and i guess it just didn't it i guess it just it just didn't land in in some cases. For so, me, w- the end helped make it land. Like I do think it's guilty of some sagging in the middle, but I like the opening end. And so, but it, I also like just that that ending. Like it's also kind of a pulling no punches kind of thing because there is no resurrection of the parents, and even the last. Well, let's talk about this. Is the first like a movie to make me cry, um, and hopefully you know what scene I'm talking about. The end of the final battle. Yeah. 
Yikes. Man. That was some battle, wasn't it? It was, but it's also, oh, man, one of the other, maybe the most ingenious thing about the writing is when the meaning of the title finally hits you. Because. Oh, yeah. You don't really. You're like. Yeah, yeah, you go in like, like when I first came to this movie, I was like, "Why is it called that?" Is it? Is, I I just didn't know. And you go in for a while, after a while, you like you forget it's called that. You're just watching this movie, and the fact that you know it also helps you know lessen the fact that they're searching for these MacGuffin items. When at the end, he realizes he spent this whole movie doing them. He's doing the battle with them, and he just tosses them all aside. He just takes the strings that are his memories of his parents, does it to music, and that last speech, Jesus. That I remember one Something line that really else. sticks out because, man, just the idea that the Moon King is all about like this kind of it's a difference of ideals. The Moon King is about this very sterile immortality, but the idea is you'll live forever and you won't feel pain and screw all the all these lesser beings and stuff. And Kubo is saying to him, "For every horrible thing down here, there's something far more beautiful." And he realizes, like, you want the eye. It's like that line like, I know why you want my eye. Because without it, I can't look into the eyes of another and see their soul. Their love. And that's already powerful enough. Then, you know, his magic summons those. I don't think they're not actual theatrical ghosts, but like the lanterns show those projections of the dead. That's what makes the villagers come out. And that projection is going like, these are the memories of those we have loved and lost. And if we hold their stories deep in our hearts, then you will never take them away from us. The movie turns to that huge monster. He's like screaming in his face. Like, I have taken everything from you. I've destroyed it all. It is gone. And then Kubo's ta- and then Kubo drives home the importance of memories. It's, it's a little Coco-ish in the importance of looking back on the people and things that shaped your life. Um, yeah. It gets thing- really profound and just really, really, really moving. I this was the, that was that whole finale was really where I you know I thought I was recovered and I it is also interesting the Moon King's fate. I there it's kind of an iffy thing because he survives but now he's brought his powers he's amnesiac and you realize that the townsfolk aren't going to exile or kill him or something. They're going to reshape him and be like you've been a good man and you'll keep being a good man and he was going to live with them. It's really really fucking bold i've talked about other bold things and moments and aspects of like movies but this this goes for it this like i can totally imagine that there were families who walked through this with really upset kids because it's so bittersweet in the end hearing you talk about it kind of makes me it makes me want to take a second look it's on netflix um yeah yeah i know um i walked out the theater i felt i felt i i i gotta give like a the credit that it's due because the way that they structure their messages, they're usually really strong and really profound. And they have a great way of looking at things and mm-hmm. bring out the positive nature in people while still highlighting the, um, a lot of the negatives and even the pathetic nature of how treat itself or even just exist by itself. Mm-hmm. I, what I got instead from this film was that and kind of, was <laughs> at the end where uh he has this family he now has this new family and basically his grandfather or the uh or this it's his grandfather yeah shell yeah the shell of his grandfather or uh where you know his memory has been wiped and now he's going to be living as as basically a senior citizen in an old folks home thinking of myself like yeah but 
Kubo. I felt more sad <laughs> yeah. than I was supposed to. I was like, but no, I like, pretty. I actually do think that the grandfather's fate is meant to make you sadder. It's not a super sunshine and roses thing because I think I'm sure that people are saying like you don't deserve that, which you're probably right. But yeah, it's kind of showing that it's kind. Of, I think it also it's kind of expanding on the paranormal idea. Like, don't you want to hurt those who have hurt you back? And they're like, and Norman's like, would that actually change anything? So I'm super petty. So when it comes to shit like that. I'm like, no, you should put his ass in jail because he tried to murder this entire village. I, I, I don't know oh. if I could have brought myself to, to do that forgiveness, but I think it's just – I remember another podcast saying like that's something you never, ever, ever, ever see family movies do. And it's a noble intent, and I got to give him credit for that. And and I did cry again when it ended, that last big shot of – we finally see that projection of his parents. Um, but it, it also touches on his speech. He's still like – you, he's touching on the fact that he's not going to be able to say properly goodbye to you. He doesn't know how this works. And they don't, they never spell out the truth of the afterlife in this world. So and, and, if there's no ambiguousness and tragedy that the movie literally closes on. That's what I had a hard time with in this film was the, the note of ambiguity. Mm. Like a cut and dry, happy ending like Paranorman had or how Coraline had. And I'm not saying every movie or has to have that. Yeah, or box trolls. I'm not saying every movie has to have that right off into the sunset kind of positive vibe. I mean, some of my favorite movies don't have that. But you feel like that would have suited this movie better? It would have, honestly. I mean, it, I, I'm with me. Only because it's it felt so open-ended that it also almost felt like a contradiction. That mm. Kubo went through all this, doesn't have what he needs but got something else as an alternate. He, he got. He basically has his grandfather. Uh, has his grandfather who kind of killed his parents. <laughs> but uh, he's, well, he, but he's, yeah. I mean, but, there's also the fact that he's stopped the biggest evil in the world. So there's that. This is true, and I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not discounting that at all. Uh, it gives Kubo a chance to actually work towards having a family again, even if it's not like the proper nuclear family. Yeah, well, the village did. liked him. Like, there's that other older lady who's, who's like, he does have a family at the end, just not yeah, yeah. not the same kind that, that he started with and not the same kind in the middle of the movie. And you're absolutely right in that. Um, I'm I'm still wrestling with Kubo. You know what? I'm not hardline. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hardline against how or it ended, but it didn't, yeah, or, or, or four. It just, it didn't, for me and I think I need mm. to have another watch of it to, to really get the sense of I vote that sometime in between this and other episodes you watch on Netflix and then give your quick updated thoughts in the first opening of an episode because there are times when I really dug Kubo mm-hmm. like even even though I had problems with that giant skeleton figure uh, uh, that that shit is amazing seeing them build it like mm-hmm. after the film is over um, I love the scenes when Kubo is telling the story with uh, with, uh, with his yeah, that's fantastic characters. Like, there's a lot of fantastic stuff in this film. I'm wondering why I still wrestle with it to this day. Where it's like, you know, yeah, I can go over it again and again and again. And even a second viewing or a third viewing, for that matter, uh, I'm, I'm just. I mean, in some ways, it's like his most unorthodox film. So that's, that's some true. people might just find it hard to express how they feel about it because it kind of plays by its own rules at points. Part of me doesn't feel as complete uh, because mm-hmm. I can I have a grasp of what I have I have a loose grasp of what they're trying to do. Excuse me. It, it just doesn't feel that finished for me. It's still phenomenal. I think 
I, okay. I, in fact, I, I think I put it. Uh, I put it. I think it's a tie between that and Coraline for me. Paranorman is number one in my and and something about Kubo keeps it at at the number two or three spot for me. Hmm. Um, is Bastrol's the fourth? Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I said yes, but I guess I didn't catch. Yeah, Box sorry Trolls, about that. Yeah, Box Trolls is the fourth is the fourth one for me. You know, it's funny. I think I might actually have the same order as you too, which is Paranorman is definitely my favorite. I think it just speaks to me more than the others in terms of how it comes together as a whole. And Coraline and Kubo are hard to decide because I think Coraline is pretty consistently super solid, but and Kubo is in certain portions all over the place. But the highs of Kubo are really, really high. So it kind of balances out to something. I got to have to watch them back to back to be able. To proper assessment and box was also good but we've touched on what makes it a lesser film than the others so i i, I, I can I, give it a higher rating yeah and i feel like we can start bringing things to a close but just some interesting notes about like uh uh and this is more just tied to depressing things about hollywood uh kubo was their first box office disappointment um that made markedly less than the others i think it barely made its budget back uh basically it got its ass kicked by, by secret life of pets uh, okay <laughs> Yep, yep. Uh, You can't really blame anyone but the audience for that, though. Uh, Here's the Uh, other thing. Thankfully, this didn't sink them. I've actually heard for years, one of the reasons that their movies are kind of bolder compared to other animation studios is, I I can't completely verify this. It's just what I've heard. You can kind of thank Phil Knight for this. Like I said, that rich investor. Movies like this, typically, you might have trouble getting distributors to fully financial back something that risky, but he is a billionaire. Like and someone's someone is keeping them afloat. It, so I think I'm it's glad. him. I think yeah. it's him. He is apparently like the thirty five richest guy in the in the world or country or something. So he has tons of money to throw away, and I guess he really does care about this stuff. And good for him. I appreciate that, Philip. You're listening. Thank you. And so I actually have heard like they are working on another feature. I, I read it was supposed to come out this year, but considering we still know nothing about it, I'm kind of counting on it getting delayed. But I'm looking forward to whatever they have next, as long as they keep doing what they do and have a solid batting average. Yeah. And another thing, maybe it's to make some money back. So his son Travis has been an animator at the studio for a while, and Kubo was actually his first directorial uh, film. Do you know what he's directing now? He's directing now. The Bumblebee movie. Transformers spinoff. Oh, cool. Okay. So well, I wouldn't call it cool. cool. Well, well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, maybe he'll make a better Transformers movie than Michael Bay, but that that's not a sign of quality, even if it's, well, well, it's not hard. That's what, yeah, well, that's what I'm – when I say cool – I read it's being um, set in the 80s because it's a prequel. Well, that's uh, that's what I'm hoping for is that whenever someone tackles Transformers, if it's someone who actually cares about the the material, so hearing someone that wants to tackle a Bumblebee spinoff, hearing them set it back in the 80s, um, they kind of do whether or not they actually give a shit. Who knows? I mean – it might not be his fault. If the script's shit, like what can you do other than direct it well? That's 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 also what, what I'm reading here on Wikipedia is that Leica has optioned Malloy's fantasy novel called Wildwood. So okay. They're, they're, they're doing adaptation off that and Philip Reeves' fantasy book called Goblins. So I'm not sure. I, I've never heard of either of those two. No, I hadn't heard of Coraline until they adapted it either. Uh, I hope Goblins isn't just Box Rolls 2.0, but I feel like they wouldn't do that. I'm yeah, I'm definitely. I'm keeping my ears up for or eyes open for whatever they do next, and there's a good chance that we'll bring up that we'll talk about some of their future projects on this show. They are they kind of make stuff tailor made for guys like us. Uh, oh. Like 
like imaginative animation that can sometimes have more to say beyond like the standard kind of slapstick we expect. I hope that I hope that whatever they create next that they're able to that they're able to financially get the money for it and yes. knock it out the park. I hope Travis Knight keeps doing it for a while on and if he dies he his will says to give a good portion to Leica. We'll see what happens. We'll see uh, what happens. Hollywood I'm is down. forever unpredictable, so who knows? But I'll always be grateful for what they've already done, I can say that much. Um so I think that's gonna bring things to a close. Uh, this was a fun episode, as long as I expected it would be. That's been about, uh, what, two, <laughs> two and a half hours? Shocker, shocker. Hey. Yeah. Yep. My, I wouldn't be surprised if this is another split in half episode. Uh, uh, what? It's fine. It's fine with me. Like, first half, Black Panther, second half. Yeah. yeah. Black Panther yeah. and the other stuff we talked, then and the Leica for another. Uh, I feel like we're about to hit our... We're trying. To, I'm trying to get one episode out every two weeks, preferably on Monday for consistency. I could probably get that opening portion out tomorrow if I blitz it tonight and tomorrow. I have to take tomorrow off from work, so there you go. I can do it. Um, so, yeah, so this has been a fun episode to do, and uh, we've teased in the past, so next episode is going to be our big 25th episode, and I've said every time we do one of those, you know, 25, 50, 75, 100, like those multiples of 25, I kind of can do this as little milestones. It is crazy to think we're coming up on uh, – we've, yeah, we've done it for about a little over a year. Um, it is crazy to think that – yeah, it's a year and a half at this point, I think, which is kind of crazy to dwell on. I can only imagine if we're still doing it like five years from now, we'll be like, oh, God, we're old. I'm on other things. So for episode 25, I know that I would really – I feel like if, if I'm going to do, do picks on those episodes, I want to pick something big, like something very important to me that I hold in high esteem or high regard. And I've picked something uh, – I, I, I ran this by you like during our Christmas episode, I think. Uh, one of my favorite movies ever. And now that you've seen it, I think it's it's your favorite from that studio at least. Uh, yeah. It is my well. We're going to do the first, not Hayao Miyazaki's first movie, but the first one to officially come under the Studio uh, Ghibli banner, Lapita Castle in the Sky. And oh, excited. I am super excited. This is a movie that will never get old to me. And, I, and to be fair, I did touch on it a little bit in our Emotional Moments episode. And I would say don't go listen to that uh, before listening to this one if you haven't seen the movie because I literally spoiled the ending. But go out and see it for yourself because it's wonderful. Uh, probably not hard to get your hands on either. I usually see, like, at Best Buy, a bunch of Ghibli movies and stuff on sale. I'm sure streaming has an option, too. So that's going to draw to a close. Chris, is there anything you want to say for the listeners? Now that I put you on the spot? No, that's that's actually about it. I hope everyone has a chance to actually check out these Leica movies at some point. You can find Kubo and what else? Paranormal Kubo and Coraline on Netflix. Netflix. Bok Trolls was in okay. the past as well. Check them out when you have a chance. Here, If you're a fan of stop motion or if you're just into something creepy, something weird, something and different. You want to yeah, something different. Like if you're tired of the same old, same old family affair that you see in family animated movies, might be right up your alley. Like uh, that's one of the things I like most about them. They're distinct. They nobody else makes these kind of animated movies on as big a scale as them, stylistically and thematically. I think you're going to have a good time if you check them out. So, yep. yeah. And, of course, we also recommend Black Panther. It's a great cultural touchstone and a great movie. All so, films. Yes. So, I'm John Flurry. I'm Christopher Wade. And what are those? Oh, now I'm part oh. of the problem. Yes, you are. <laughs> you can't take it back. Commit. <laughs>
Don't do that. I'll always remember. <laughs> Good night, everyone.